From west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel. Experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 158 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting as Well podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling and I am joined by my co-host, producer and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing pretty okay. How are you? Good, good. <laughs> I hope I'm doing well, you know, for for our, our friends out there. You know, this is a we're taking you backstage. We are pre-recording a number of episodes because, as you know, uh, if you've been listening the last couple of weeks, I'm in I went into the hospital for surgery. Ideally, hopefully, if all went well, I am home now uh, recovering. And but we just wanted to get a couple of shows uh, in the can, so yeah. to speak. The virtual can, mm-hmm. so that um, you know, it, in the hopes that we didn't have to, we could bring you new material, and not have to go into the archives quite yet. So anyway, so but um, you know, we we've talked about this before, but I um in the mail uh, would have been yesterday, I guess. I I ordered two medium figs, and you know, I wanted a, the Splash Mountain fig. And then I wanted a Bambi fig from the anniversary. I think um, the film had its anniversary. And they made a, a medium fig for it. So I got those in the mail. And I wanted the Bambi because when you come into our house, there are some Bambi garden statues as you enter our house. And then our family room, uh, well, the whole back of our house is is on all three sides. You look out into all the gardens that I have. And so I wanted the Bambi medium fig and Splash Mountain fig sort of in the family room because those are very nature oriented and all that. And and the Bambi sort of ties the front of the house in at the back of the house. Sounds like I put a lot of thought into this, but I really don't. But I ordered, you know, I ordered the Splash Mountain one through, we have a mutual cast member friend, you and I. Yeah. And I did, I, I didn't, I, I'm going to relate a story he shared, and I, I don't want to use his name because he didn't say, I didn't ask him, hey, can I share this story? But, you know, he told me how people came into his shop and they bought up all 10 of the Splash Mountain figs and then tons of lithographs and, and other merchandise. And it's clear they're going to trot right out and then mark these up astronomically for resale on ebay and i did not buy this at um with his cast member discount as i told him i want to pay full price he went to his manager and got permission explain the situation that you know i'm a fan of the films and and that i you know i wanted these souvenirs and all this kind of stuff and his manager approved it so it's not like I was trying to get a discount and all that. And so, and because I didn't pay with my Disney visa, he paid for it and I sent him the, the money through PayPal. So I didn't even get that discount. So it just ticks me off that people do this so that guests who go into the park who would like to purchase these because they're there can't. And I don't know. And I know Disney can't do anything. It's not like, the cast members or the managers of the shops can say, no, I'm sorry, you can't buy that many. And and there's no point in limiting it to two because all they'll do is have all their friends come in and each yep. of them will buy two. And then, so there's no workaround for this. But it just, when he related this story to me, it just ticked me off so much, you know? Yeah, it's so I'm just venting. <laughs> I'm just venting because I know there's some of our listeners out there. I know they've been through the same frustration. Yeah, well, that, I mean, um, we've all been through it. I think at at some point yeah. in time that we wanted, we had our eye on that one Disney thing and and really wanted it and just hoped that it would be available 
when when we finally had a chance to get out and and get it and then sure enough it it wasn't anymore i mean i know i know i had that with uh i can't remember which funko pop it was but one of the one of the funkos that i was like oh i'll be able to get this nice and easy and cuz i another one i had gone to the to Disney Springs to get it, had no line, no issues, walked right up, got it, no problem. I think then the next one right after that, I was like, it's going to be just as easy. And I went like two or three hours after after they started selling them. And of course, I wasn't able to get it. They were all sold out. And it's like, okay, well, what are you going to do on that? So I, we, we've all been there. It's I just, I, I don't know. I don't know if Disney needs to just start limiting the numbers that they make and then saying limit it to one per person or or what. But there, there's got to be a solution to the problem. Yeah. And they always threaten like, oh, we're going to we're going to take away people's passes for for flipping it. And, you know, maybe they do it to a couple people. But I it's just like I, I looked for I looked for you because you asked me about the the medium figs and see if I could get them and I walked in the store mm-hmm. and there was nothing at all and I went on the I went on the annual pass holder preview day so that means there was some cast members who must have went in and bought it up or they just didn't have them mm-hmm. out or they were mm-hmm. behind a place but I mean, yeah it, when they, when they came into the shop he said they got two in the shop uh, the day or so after I asked. And so when he saw him come in, he, um, you know, he took one aside and that's when he talked to his manager and asked if he could purchase one on my behalf. And the manager gave his approval. So, um, so that was nice. Yeah. So he's a good guy. Anyway, but he is that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) And, um, a very nice person. So, Anyway, oh well, that, that that's it. But yeah, hopefully, hopefully there'll be more merchandise for the folks that you know want something to remember, you know, from this attraction. You know, that's what I wanted, and um, so you know, hopefully there'll be there'll be other things. I would imagine uh, if Disney has the time, they'll they'll capitalize on it. Uh, yeah, so, uh, eventually, oh well. money will outweigh morals with disney on this one and i (laughs) you know it's i and i would i would love to be wrong about it almost in a way because you know it's Mm -hmm. that's a lot of people would appreciate taking the the ground of okay sell out everything that they have and let's bury this thing once and for all and you know what that would be that would be big on disney if if they did do that but it's you know, it, they also they understand the power of marketing as well, too. So I think that can only hold out for so long while park capacity is at a percentage of what it it normally is. And, you know, cancellations are still happening. Like as the day we're recording this, they just had to cancel Run Disney, which, of course, brings in big money for not just the run Disney, but then gets people on property spending tons of money as well, too. So mm-hmm. it's it, all these things are going to continue having a ripple effect and merchandising is a way to to bring in the big bucks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know I, I you know, went on a screed a few weeks ago about the hypocrisy of Splash Mountain and Song of the South and Disney and all that. But um. You know, I have to recognize that people love this attraction and that they're going to want something from it. And um, anyway, and I, I think it's terrible what the resellers do, you know, for that. Oh, well. Anyway, moving on. Oh, I, I um, you know, folks who knew Carol knew that she had um, cardiopulmonary hypertension. And that's why she wore the oxygen and used a scooter and stuff like that. And I got notified today, and I, I absolutely am not sure why I'm being notified about this, is I'm being honored by um, PHA, the Pulmonary Hypertension Association. It, Carol was an extremely active member, and, and actually one of the last things that happened is she was, she was honored. 
at their uh, their national convention in Orlando, and that's was our 29th wedding anniversary, and that's when we stayed at the Polynesian Resort, which was always went, was always on our bucket list. And she went into the hospital just shortly afterwards. Well, um, they're doing, of course, a virtual uh, event this year. It, it was because it, it was supposed to be in Anaheim, and they're calling it the PHA Summertime. Faling, of course, it's P-H-L-I-N-G celebration on August 1st. And they asked me to attend virtually because I'm one of the honorees for my volunteer work with P-H-A. Now, I'm sure there's a long list, but I thought that was very nice. And um, I think it was because we did uh, the P-H walk in San Francisco, Carol, last year. Um, my sister-in-law, Kathy, and Carol's cousin, Kitty, and and I helped too, but it was they were the driving force. We they we put together Team Carol, and we were the number one f- group, you know, fundraising group for the PH Walk, and did it in honor of Carol. So I think that's what it's for. And a lot of people in the Diz community contributed to it. And so um, anyway, so yeah, August first, I'm being recognized for that so I, i'm i'm mentioning it only because folks associated with the Diz who knew carol did make contributions to it so i just wanted to let you know that you know you're being recognized as well you know for that so oh nice anyway yeah that is nice so i'm very flattered about that but i, th- I think it's a I don't think it, I don't think I really deserve the honor, but um, mm-hmm. it's very sweet that they're doing that. And I helped um, write and edit a article they're doing on Carol for um, their annual report this year. Mm. So, anyway, which I think is really the reason that they <laughs> they they put me on the list. Um, Anyway, um, as we've been mentioning the last few weeks, we are trying to bring back a, a different version of Storytime with Michael, thanks to a suggestion from uh, our listener, Sean. Rather than reading um, books, as we mentioned a while back, that there's copyright issues, went to the Gutenberg Project, Project Gutenberg, and um, looked at what's there. And we're going to, if all goes as planned, but we need your help. We are going to uh, read the original stories, the fairy tales that Walt then, um, you know, converted, sort of, you know, transitioned over to make the Disney version that we all know. And so one of the books on the Gutenberg list was Andrew Lang's um, Little Blue Fairy Tale book. And I have that in my collection because my godmother gave it to me when I was nine years old. So I went through and I selected some stories that were either uh, feature animated films or shorts that Walt Disney did. And those are The Sleeping Beauty in the Wood, Cinderella or the Little Glass Slipper, Hansel and Gretel, Snow White and Rose Red, and The Brave Little Tailor. And But what we need your help with is that there's very few illustrations in these stories. And you don't want to just sit there as I'm reading these stories because there's a bit lengthy, some of them. You know, I would t- I would talk about the stories and then talk about uh, a little about the Disney history with these stories and how they became animated features and shorts. And so then that's what we sort of did. We gave some of the background history on, on the books I read for Storytime with Michael. So we need your help in creating the illustrations for these stories that we can show on Storytime with Michael. And then, of course, if um, we would recognize you as the artist at the beginning and end, and then, of course, you'd get recognition during the, uh, you know, if you sign your work, you'll get recognition that way throughout the video. And so we're hoping that folks will contact us and say, hey, we'd like to be a part of this and show our, our artwork. And, of course, we will also then direct folks, if you have uh, a site where you're selling your art, we'll direct you know, the listeners, the videos, the, the viewers to your site. So, uh, Craig, if folks are interested in learning more about this, how can they find out more? Uh, the uh, best way is to get in touch with Michael and I via email, michael at wdwinfo.com and craig at wdwinfo.com. And uh, once you get in touch with us, you know, we can discuss uh, different formats and uh, ways that, you know, we can we can get the art all 
cultivated, put together, talk about any ideas with it and uh, any questions, concerns, of course, and, you know, really just kind of hash out all the details that that we need to talk about before really getting uh, started on this. And then uh, if you are having trouble getting in touch with us by email for some strange reason, which hopefully that's not the case, then, of course, you can always connect with us on Twitter as well at connecting Walt, and we'll see the we'll see the messages there, and then uh, find a way to to get in touch. Great, so thank you. Yeah, we hope that we'll get some artists out there who uh, want to help us, uh, you know, sort of um, resurrect story time with Michael, and I think that'll be fun that we're going to be partnering with some of you to bring back that video um, segment of connecting with Walt. So uh, just a reminder that we, you know, we, we are going to be talking about the man in space series on Disney plus, you know, when I get back. And uh, so you want to make sure that you watch those so that you, you sort of know what we're talking about. We will be talking about, you know, some of the missing content that is not on Disney plus as well. So, but um, those are great, series is we are going to learn uh, during our conversation with Todd James Pierce. And we're going to be continuing that conversation in this episode. Uh, We started that last week as we examine one of the most fascinating and multifaceted animators out of Walt's Nine Old Men, and that is Ward Kimball. And Todd James Pierce is the author of the book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. So we're going to continue our conversation with Todd now. Now, you said that you talked about how Ward had this unique position in the company compared in the studio compared to like the other eight of the nine old men and all that. So what was Ward's relationship like with them? Oh, I, I think that they all socially get along reasonably well, but um, Ward is persona non grata in the 1950s with the other with the other full animators, with the old, other nine old men. Um, I don't think any of them want Ward to work on another feature film after Alice in Wonderland. They've seen that Ward is not going to bend to make his characters and his character movements uh, gel more with the type of pictures that they're trying to put together, that Ward's going to continuously turn in things that are very much his own. Um, he had done some early animation for the Siamese Cats and uh, Lady and the Tramp, which they um, essentially throw out and start over on. And so Walt Disney has this kind of interesting problem. Uh, he has this eccentric um, somewhat ego-driven animator who's extremely talented, but also doesn't want to work visually in the house style. He doesn't want to produce things that are going to blend well with the features that are that are um, being generated at the studio. And so in, in earlier years, the answer would have been to move that animator back to the shorts where there's more freedom. But at this point, the shorts are starting to go away. And so what Walt Disney's... Um, answer to this is is to essentially um pair ward up with a co-director teach him how to make films and then allow him some freedom to make his own films uh walt also seems smart enough to know that uh, ward well enough at this point to understand that ward is not very good at telling stories um and this becomes very clear later in his life when he really has a lot of freedom to create his own projects but ward is very good at presenting um, uh, kind of visual messages. And so Walt Disney's solution to this is, is to give Ward nonfiction topics in animation and allow him to explore things that are essentially essays and that aren't necessarily narratives, which is a much stronger format for Ward to work in. And so he starts this by telling the history of music and instruments and the adventures in music series. Um, and then he moves on from that to working on the Man in Space films. And all of these projects I think are are very successful, but they're also very successful because uh, Disney's smart enough to know that you need to find some other angle for Ward other than what the rest of the studio is doing in terms of narrative development. 
Well, and that's what they say was one of the geniuses of Walt Disney is he knew how to recognize talent and how to use people, you know, pair them up and use them to the best of their abilities within the studio. Yeah. So I I think that really kind of, you know, shows through here. Um, Ward doesn't want to go on to TV animation, which is kind of like this thing that's looming on the horizon. And so Ward is very interested in helping Walt to find projects for him to for him to oversee. Um, there's no Tomorrowland material. So back, back in 1954 and 1955, the Disneyland TV show was arranged around... Um, the, the major themed areas of, of Disneyland, there's the frontier episodes and the fantasy episodes and the adventure episodes. And what was able to um, pull footage that they had previously done or things that they had in production kind of fill up all of these other episodes. You know, there's Davy Crockett and then there would um, be some segments from Alice in Wonderland for the Fantasyland episodes and so on. But he really had nothing for... Uh, Tomorrowland. They they hadn't explored science fiction or near future elements in any of the previous Disney Disney films. So there was nothing to occupy that. And so um, the Man in Space films get started because uh, uh, Walt is trying to find really anything in that first season. I believe there was twenty episodes that first season. I could be wrong about that. I believe there was twenty episodes that first season. And. Um, uh, he's trying to find anything so that there's at least one Tomorrowland episode. And uh, Ward is interested in um, kind of near future projects. Ward's interested in space travel. Ward's interested in the possibility of life elsewhere in the in the universe. And so he's been reading in Collier's Magazine. Uh, Collier's Magazine was putting out a series of uh, articles about the possibility of space travel for people in the near future. Um, he'd been reading these articles. And so um, Walt Disney has a problem. He needs to have um, uh, some Tomorrowland-based material for his TV show. And these music nonfiction short cartoons, which have won some very nice awards, are coming to an end because they're expensive and animation in terms of the short short uh, venue isn't uh, really pulling in a whole lot of revenue. Um, and so Ward needs a new project to work on so that he's not kind of pushed over to the features where they don't want him at the moment or to TV animation or something like that. And so Ward really kind of like finesses this thing along um, to suggest that he can find some way to create Tomorrowland episodes for the Disneyland TV show. And that seems to be a very happy solution for everyone to to place him on this project to produce um, something for the TV show, but also to give him to let him to continue that space where he gets to control how the how the material that he produces looks. And if you look at those Man in Space features or the Adventures in Music, like Toot Whistle, Plunk and Boom, mm-hmm. it looks so much more like um, the very flat, very stylized animation that was coming out of UPA than it does anything that was coming out of Disney during those same years. Oh, absolutely. How did he get um, folks like Werner von Braun, who was basically in charge of our space program at the time, uh, involved in the show? So, so, uh, Werner von Braun at the time, so this is before NASA, um, Werner von Braun is working on um, kind of missile development for the U.S. military. And so it's before we have a, an American space space program. And so the way that this kind of plays out is, um, so Disney's a company, even today, that will um, use elements that are familiar to them. And so they want to create a show about space travel. And so they hire a person named Charlie Shows, who's... <laughs> who's um, the writer for um, a kind of a kid's um, science fiction show that's being produced in L.A. And that doesn't go very well because they realize that Charlie Shows really doesn't know anything about space travel, even though he's working in a cognate field. He's working in TV production. So they they figure that, you know, maybe he's already done some of this research. And so then um, uh, Ward Kimball and his team reach out to the person that's 
been the um, series editor for these essays that have been appearing in Collier's, and that person's name is Willie Lay. He's um, a German scientist. His background is in zoology, but he's kind of trained himself about how um, missile and space technology works, and he's made a name for himself in this country since immigrating uh, a couple decades earlier. And William Lay knows um, all the key figures in the states that would um, be able to contribute to uh, the man in, in space series, such as Bernard Braun or uh, Heinz Haber. Um, and so it's it's really through Willie Lay that Disney's able to kind of make meaningful connections with uh, people like uh, Werner von Braun. And von Braun is very interested in trying to find a larger platform for his message that um, these multi-stage rockets that he's um, proposing are going to be a way to effectively um, move, move humans towards space travel. He's looking for a larger platform to present this message to the American public because it's going to take taxpayer dollars to make this idea a reality. And at the time that um, uh, Kimball is looking into this, uh, he's already made a tentative arrangement to create a multi-episode um, multi series for CBS. And um, these are going to be very short shows. Back in the early days of TV, we think of TV now as like, half hour or hour shows. And uh, these were going to be maybe like 15 minute shows, uh, but there was going to be a whole lot of them. And um, as the deal with CBS falls apart, as CBS wants to make something that's more dramatic, like a science fiction show that's also about space flight, um, Werner von Braun is able to work his way out of that arrangement so that then he's available for Disney to be featured in in the series that they want to make about the possibilities of manned spaceflight. And really for like a very small crew of animators, um, the people that Ward Kimball has working on these series, these, these are not the A-list people at Disney. Those people are working on features. He's, Ward Kimball's going around to the animators bullpen, to the newly hired in-betweeners, and trying to find people that he thinks are going to be pretty good and then asking if he can transfer them to his unit, and then he'll teach them how to how to animate. Um, he doesn't have a very large budget for backgrounds, and so um, he's trying to find people out of the bullpen that can make realistic um, uh, space backgrounds for the show as well. Um, and so he kind of like cobbles this whole thing together. But out of this, um, out of these shows, Ward Kimball has an effect on national policy. Um, there's a number of senators that point to, particularly the first show, Man in Space, as being one of the turning points where the American public starts to understand that this is a realistic possibility in the future. And um, with taxpayer funding, um, that there can be an American space program. And so um, when you think of like, well, what does animation do? Well, you know, it entertains, it, it helps people understand the interior space of other characters. But in this instance, you know, American animation on TV, no less, helps shape uh, future American national policy. Yeah, those are brilliant shows. Uh, I, Craig and I have talked about them many times. We have them on the Disney Treasures series. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about them a lot. And, you know, there they have all the episodes that were made. So we're, we were thrilled when, you know, Disney Plus have two of the episodes on there so we're going to talk about those in the upcoming weeks there, there is a famous story that ward told and this story seemed very fluid as ward retold it but we've all heard the story this is now back working on snow white so we're going back in time a bit and ward was working very hard on the seven dwarf soup eating scene. And as you know, Walt was reviewing the dailies and all that, he thought as brilliant as the animation was, it was slowing down the story. They needed to get to the Wicked Witch, so he cut it. And um, years later, Ward tells the story that he was so mad that he stormed into Walt's office intending to quit, but he left Walt's office very happy with because Walt somehow assuaged his feelings and gave him the assignment of drawing Jiminy Cricket for Pinocchio. But 
Pinocchio at the time was not the second film that was scheduled. It was Bambi, Mm -hmm. which means Pinocchio probably wasn't that far along in Walt's mind and development. So what, what do you think is the real story behind the story? Well, so what I think the real story, I think that over time, um, so you know, now I think we think of animation history as something that needs to really be kind of like uh, parsed out and needs to be made sense of on a month by month or a year by year basis. And when Ward was telling the story, um, and you're right, he told that story many, many times. Um, I think what he was trying to do was trying to present the general gist of how things worked at the studio, that this was taken away from him. So he had spent a, a long time, many months working on um the music in your soup sequence which is you can find it on the blu-ray and dvd extras and stuff like Mm -hmm. that you can find it on youtube um and so it is finished off entirely in in pencil animation and he'd spent a long time doing this and this was the first feature and this was going to be his big scene in the movie Um, most of the full animators had a sequence that was their sequence and this was his sequence and so and they were also, paid by the what the number of feet they weren't in the they, film kind of thing. They had a salary, but they were given a footage bonus for mm-hmm. the amount of good footage that they had on the on the screen. So there was also financial loss here yeah. as well. But uh, Walt has a problem. Um, there are two musical numbers in, in a row. Um, there's the washing song, and then there's this. Uh, eating of the soup song um, and they come pretty much back to back the washing song is before the soup song um, and they both do about the same thing the element that the washing song has over um, the one that Ward Kimball did is of the dwarves the dwarf that has the most significant story arc is grumpy Grumpy goes from being the one that's most dismissive of, of Snow White. He is clearly the Dorth that has, has um, some past that has wounded him deeply and is, does not want to present himself as, some, as someone that is vulnerable and does not want to warm up to anything that might be considered soft. Um, and that disagreeableness and distance is on full display in the washing song, and it's not in the soup song. So the washing song is more important for the movie um, because... Uh, uh, Grumpy at the end of the movie is going to be the one that's the biggest defender of Snow White. So that arc needs to follow all the way through the narrative. And so uh, Walt needs to cut a scene because it's it's slowing down. There's duplication in terms of uh, what the scenes do in, in terms of the overall plot progression. And so he calls Ward up to his office one day to have a conversation over the phone before this and you know compliments him on the scene but says that it needs needs to be cut and so ward wants to quit and he thinks that this might be the opportunity for him to um take the money that he has now and then go to new york that this would be a good jumping off point the economy's better um he can get his wife betty and they can catch a train and he can start his career as an illustrator for magazines hopefully or something like that in new york but walt talks him out of it and so you're absolutely right um ward always tells the story and he says that instead of um being um the animator for this sequence is going to be in the movie. He can instead be um, a um, he can instead be a supervising animator for Pinocchio. And that's the way he would present it. A supervising animator was a person that oversaw other animators and unified the work on one character. And so um, uh, there's no way that could have happened. Jiminy Cricket wasn't yet developed as a significant character for the Disney movie Pinocchio. And Pinocchio wasn't even the next thing in the shoot that was supposed to come out. It was supposed to be Bambi. Bambi just proved to be a much more difficult feature to put together. There's one interview. So I I came up with about 150 interviews from Ward Kimball. I looked for them for years in all kinds of places. And there's one early interview where I think that he says exactly what happened. And he says that he left that interview. uh, He left that meeting. And Ward told him that instead of having the soup scene, he could 
work on um, the scene with the vultures that follow the queen to her death at the end of the film. And that's what he does um, in the film. Uh -huh. That's going to be okay. his big scene. And I, I think that's probably what, what happened there. But in the story that Ward tells, told many times, I think he's trying to explain that Walt suggested to him that he had a future at the studio, that he was going to um, not only continue as a full animator, but he was going to be one of the lead full animators and that he was going to oversee um, entire characters for movies going forward. And the first time that he gets that opportunity is going to be with, with, with Jiminy Cricket. So that's going to take a little bit of time for that to materialize. Okay. All right. So I can see how he would um, progress to that. Okay, in his story, that makes sense. <clears throat> he just cut out a little of the middle part. <laughs> so I think a lot of these stories, especially for the people from that start in the 30s, like war, they start telling these stories in the 60s, so like 30 years after they happen. And the first places that they start to tell these stories are not at um, are not in interviews or oral histories or anything like that, where you can kind of like slow things down and spend hours with a person. They're on stage at film festivals where you kind of have to have snappy answers that condense things down to a quick point. And so I think that this answer got kind of honed in that situation where you needed something like a soundbite. So the stage presentation could continue at a quick clip. And he's simply explaining the point of the story by condensing the details down to a single meeting okay that makes sense well thank you i appreciate you clearing that up so now trains were a big part in ward's family life and, and you wrote in your book that ward's first rec recognizable drawing was a train when he was three years old and trains are a big part of ward's personal life i thought it was amazing that on the weekends and even on dates when he was dating betty they would go out to the train yard <laughs> <laughs> Betty must have been a very patient woman. I, 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 I imagine that's very true. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and even had his own huge railroad in, you know, the Grizzly Flats uh, Railroad in his three-acre backyard. And, uh, and that was an important personal connection between him and Walt. Yeah, so Walt had grown up around trains as well. Um, uh, Walt and Roy... Uh, Walt and Ward both had relatives that worked on the railroad, and uh, in 19, I think it's 1939, off the top of my head, Ward buys for the price of scrap metal a 22-ton uh, late 1800s mogul railroad, something that's designed for interstate commerce travel, and he puts it on a a length of track in his backyard. the The track starts out at around 700 feet. It's not a circle; you can go forward and then you can go backward and this is a massive locomotive that he steams up back there and he goes forward and he goes backward on it. so it's it's this entirely um eccentric uh eccentric uh hobby pursuit that he has uh it has no practical purpose it's a tremendous amount of money to refurbish this but there's a number of other people that he uh, spends time with that are enamored with antique transportation and they all kind of collectively work on this he'll get a second railroad uh, locomotive a little bit later in his life because this first one starts to have some problems and uh, he moves into a community in san bernardino that when he arrives there is still mostly farming but then starts to become more um I don't know, suburban. They're large lots. They're two and three acre lots. And his neighbors don't necessarily appreciate a, uh, a, a wood or coal burning uh, railroad going up and down, um, you know, with steam <laughs> on the weekends. Why. <laughs> so he gets a smaller one a little bit later on. Uh -huh. So, but as he's the one that he took um, Walt to the uh, railroad festival. Well, yes, I, it might be the other way around. Yes. Okay. So, yeah. Well, they went together. He got him interested. Went together. I guess. Yeah. yeah. So um, in 1948, um, Walt's becoming more interested in railroads. Uh, Walt had worked as a newsboy selling candy and sodas and newspapers on, on trains when he was young. And they're part of... Um, 
that nostalgia aspect of Walt that he remembers fondly about his own past. And so in the late 1940s, um, Walt's hands are kind of tied at the studio. The, the, the studio is now publicly traded. And so there needs to be some sort of um, buy-in from the board uh, if Walt wants to produce new features. And they don't have the money yet to produce full features like they used to before the war. And they also don't have the personnel yet either. They've lost a lot of people to the war. Um, people have left to fight and have not come back and on to other, other work. And so the studio is making package features. And these are features that kind of have two varieties. There's sometimes there's kind of like two novella linked stories like uh, Mr. Toad and Ichabod Crane that are put together to make something that's feature length. And other times they're simply just short cartoon segments that are then maybe stitched together with a frame story such as the three caballeros that then make a feature and so walt who's very interested in moving the artistic mediums that engage him forward can't do that he can't do it technologically he can't do it artistically and he can't do it narratively in the late 1940s and so his interest starts to wander into other areas and so one of the places that it um you know, finds a home is with his interest in trains. And so the previous year he had set up um, uh, uh, like a tabletop Lionel train in his office at the studio. His office at the studio up on the third floor of the animation building is really like a suite of rooms. There's a workroom, there's a much more of a presentation office, and there's this kind of backspace in the office. And it was in that backspace in the office where Walt had set up this train layout and he'd worked on it with a person named... Uh, um, Roger Brogy, who was uh, the uh, machinist at the studio that took care of the uh, cam cameras and the multiplane and, and things like that. And so, but after that, Walt has the idea that maybe he can get something a little bit larger to uh, work with at the studio. And so he has this idea. He wants to get uh, an excursion zoo-style railroad, so a one-third scale railroad. And this could be like a public attraction where people could come in and ride his train and maybe he could get some access to Griffith Park, which was very close to the studio. So they could also go through part of Griffith Park and maybe as part of this train excursion, they could see part of the studio and understand a little bit about how animation was made. And so Walt has the idea of um, perhaps purchasing from a private collector up in uh, Los Gatos, California, up in, uh, by San Francisco in the Bay Area, a train like the Wildcat Railroad that's operated on the weekends up there and bringing that down to the studio. And during this period, he starts to become close with other people that are interested in railroads at the studio, such as uh, Roger Brogy or Ollie Johnston, who at that time, he doesn't have it yet, but he's building it himself, um, uh, a scale model railroad to run around his backyard. Um, he also becomes a little bit close with um, um, Ben Sharpstein, who's interested in antique cars, and then um, Ward Kimball, who has the full-size railroad running back and forth in his own backyard. And so through this, um, so earlier I talked about like Walt's easiest to hang out with when you have a common interest. And this is one of the things that starts to bring Walt and uh, Ward together is they have this common interest in trains. And uh, Walt needs help understanding what it is that he would actually need to have at the studio if he's going to have a working railroad as a type of an amusement attraction that the public could come and ride and see the studio with. And so Ward Kimball tells him that the price that they want for this uh, used uh, zoo railroad is too high and that there could be better things um, that he could get for the same amount of money if he kind of looks around this world. And out of this, Walt wants to go to the um, 1948 uh, Chicago Railroad Fair. The Chicago Railroad Fair is going to celebrate 100 years of railroads in America. And Ward would very much like to go to this. Um, his wife will kill him if he takes time off work and goes by himself um, and spends a tremendous amount of money to go out there and to check out the railroad fair and then comes home. And so... Uh, Ward gets Walt's nurse to drop hints to Walt 
that Walt should take Ward, that Ward knows a lot about trains, and that Ward would be the perfect traveling companion and could probably guide him in some of these pursuits about how best to set up a train at the studio. And and this this works out. Um, this works out very well. Um, Ward would later explain that, you know, Walt was very enamored with um with Ward and just kind of chose to 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 pick him, but it was it was far more uh, was far more manipulated than this based on Ward Kimball's diary that Ward Kimball is constantly needling the nurse to drop the hint to Walt that uh, Ward would be the person to take on the trip. But they end up um, going out to the Chicago Railroad Fair for uh, about a week. Um, the studio picks up everything: train travel. Um, they say at the Palmer House in Chicago, very nice accommodations, um, um, admission to the fair and and all that. Um, and they have a tremendous time. And this for a while becomes the center of of their of their relationship. That, that and that is fascinating because you know you always you, when you hear this story, the common story is is that you know the studio nurse told uh, well, you need to relax. Or you're going to have another nervous breakdown, mm-hmm. and and Walt says, "What about that Ward Kimball fellow? He always looks relaxed, and and that he sought out Ward to find out what he does." So uh, that, that's that's the story that you heard from uh, from Ward Kimball because that's yeah, the story yeah. that he would tell. That's not the story that's in his diary, though. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I'm glad you're here to correct all of this. Now, you you mentioned that uh, you know Ward was you know he was. He put together the Firehouse Five Plus Two, mm-hmm. and and he was a gifted jazz trombonist as well. Yeah. Did his interest in trains and music influence his animation work? Did his interest in train in, in music, all of it? They all. He's able to kind of so for Ward's kind of larger life work. It's always the space between these known points where the interesting things happen. If Ward had just started a, a, a Dixieland jazz band where the people sat in their seats and played music, I don't, you know, it might have been like an interesting thing to have at the studio, but it, it makes a name for itself, I think, because uh, Ward is able to find spaces between these multiple things that he's interested in. And so the Firehouse Five is not a band that sits in those seats like every other Dixieland band of the era. Instead, they get up and they dance, and it's uh, the type of dancing that you'd see in animated cartoons. It's a very frenetic, stylized um, dance with a lot of energy. They bring stage props. They bring whistles and alarms and hand cranks. They have gags on stage. And so the audience knows that these are animators, and the animators up there are also kind of acting out um, the, the types of scenes that they would produce in cartoons. And then beyond that, um, they arrive to their gigs in this um, antique uh, uh, La France fire engine that, that Ward's restored. So his interest in antique transportations, maybe not so much trains, but other types of transportation, plays into this. They, they um, have been able to find some used... Um, uh, Fireman's hat with leather on them that are that are really nice. I've seen some of them that they that they wear to the that they wear to their performances, and so it's kind of pulling together all of these things that interest Ward to create something new. And this is really kind of the key to figuring out how Ward works, is that Ward work Ward seems to understand that simply doing one of these things isn't going to produce something that's interesting. It needs to find space or collaborate between these elements that produces produces something new um at the at the studio he does the same thing he's um all the train animation almost all the train animation the train animation for casey jr uh, ward contributes to that the train sequence and toad um ward does that so he's able to bring his interest in trains into the studio in terms of what he creates there but probably more importantly He's able to take his background and his interest in jazz, or what he would refer to as as hot jazz, very um, urban, very stylized, uh, very fast uh, tempo jazz, into the studio to um, help him understand how to express that visually in animation. And so there's a number of sequences where other animators will be 
like in Three Caballeros, will be working with Donald Duck in the scene. And then we'll move into a very fast-paced number. And the scene would just be handed off to Kimball at that point to do those sequences with the fast-paced dancing. And then to be handed back to the animator that was controlling the sequence before that. But it, it's that space between between elements that really kind of drives him. And he understands that more than other animators. Um, Ward never really moves away until he's much older ward never moves away from the ambition to prove that he can be an artist that can stand toe to toe with the people that taught at his art school this is something that drives him when he's young he wants to go to new york to be an illustrator because many of the artists that taught him um uh had done this and uh laid out this kind of plan for this would be the ideal way that you would arrange your own life as an artist and so in the 1950s and 1960s, um, Ward starts to return to these art school goals of being able to prove himself in gallery spaces as a fine artist in museum spaces. And he has this idea that the way that he's going to distinguish his work as different than other artists is that it's going to have movement. Um, and so he's been an artist. Um, a commercial artist that's worked with movement his entire life at the Disney studio. And so he's going to try to find this um, blended space between um, uh, museum installations or canvases and what he understands about how movement creates message. And so he creates all these um, pieces of art at the end of his life. Some of them are canvases. Some of them are more kind of installation pieces that he calls kinetics. And the meaning in the art would come from how the art moved. And so he was trying to even, you know, in his later years, trying to find this um, space where the animation then would also go back and influence art school ideas that he had harbored for, for decades at that point. That was interesting. I mean, oh my gosh, I could listen to him talk about Ward Kimball all day. Yep. <laughs> So, I mean, Todd has some great stories. He'll have even better stories next week when we conclude our conversation with Todd James Pierce. But until then, we have to go back. Maybe some of this will be in the time of Ward Kimball. Um, we're going to take a look at This Week in Disney History. Okay, Craig, we are here in the week of August 2nd, back in time, back to simpler times. Yeah. So, oh. <laughs> All right, so let's start with August 2nd. Okay, Julie Andrews, Dick Van Dyke, songwriter Richard Sherman, and the Disneyland Band rededicate one of the Walt Disney Studios Sound Stages in Burbank, California, to be named the Julie Andrews Stage on August 2nd, 2001. What is the number of this sound stage? Okay. It's been a while since I've been on the lot, so I need to get back in and start thinking. I Number... Which one is the Annette Funicello stage? Is that two or three? Actually, I'm going to say maybe the Mary Poppins stage is three. Okay. Well, you're only one off. It's soundstage two. So, yeah, Ju Julie Andrews filmed Walt Disney's Mary Poppins. And as of this date, the recent The Princess Diaries in this soundstage. And The Princess Diaries will be released the following day. Well, let's see Annette stage. Is that one? or? I think an Annette Funicello is stage one, isn't she? I can't. It's all blending together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I need to get back to the studios. That's the, I the agree. real thing. Yeah, it'll be nice to get back there yeah. when they start up the tours again. Mm -hmm. Okay. August 3rd. The first showing of a sing-along version of a Walt Disney Academy Award-winning classic film is held at Disney's El Capitan Theater in Hollywood on August 3rd, 2000. 
a restored 35 millimeter Dolby stereo print of the classic 1964 film features on-screen lyrics of all the songs so that audiences can join in. Moviegoers are encouraged to dress as their favorite character from the film, and prizes for best costume are awarded at each show. What is the title of this classic Walt Disney film? Well, if we're saying 64, then I'm going to have to assume we're talking about Mary Poppins as well. That's that's absolutely right. Walt Disney's Mary Poppins. See how I tied in those first two questions? I like it. I like it. It's <laughs> fancy of you. Yeah, yeah. I know. So it was, a, it was a very nice happenstance there. Okay, August 4th. Now, now we're off in, in new territory. Disney cartoonist and comic artist Paul Murray passes away in California at age 77. During his career, Murray threw th- drew thousands of pages of comics for Western, Dell, and Gold Key, and was one of the very few artists who could essentially draw all of the Disney characters. Like many Disney comic book artists, Murray started his career working at the Walt Disney Studio. During his time there, he was an assistant to a legendary animator, perhaps best known for redesigning Mickey Mouse into his official appearance we know today. Who is this animator and Disney legend? Ooh, I think you have me stumped on this one. So I'm, I, I, I never heard. I don't. I don't think I've ever heard this fact. So, yeah, this is Fred Moore, Freddie Moore. Okay. Okay. So and um, you know, he 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 um, Sorcerer Mickey in Fantasia. That's probably his best known Mickey Mouse. Yeah. Now would become pretty much the mickey that we we know and love today well there is the aberration that's the those modern shorts but uh but this is the the mickey they keep going back to officially so um and in the 1940s uh, murray worked on disney newspaper strips including the sunday uncle remus and his tales of brer rabbit strip from the first installment in october 1945 through july 1946 and then after leaving the studio in 1946, he began to work for Western Publishing doing stories featuring the Disney characters. So I remember, I mean, the, a lot of those comic books were still being made when I was a boy. Because when we would go to Disneyland, my parents would um, get some of those comic books that we would read on the way down there. And they had on Main Street, where I think the toy shop is now, you know, in the little arcade they have on Main Street, and you know, sort of begins at the Emporium, yeah, and goes through in the toy. It's a toy store location now. That was a bookstore at one time, and they would sometimes sell Disney comic books in there. Okay, August fifth. The 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea exhibit opens in Tomorrowland at Disneyland on August fifth, nineteen fifty-five. The walkthrough exhibit features props and set pieces from the 1954 Walt Disney live-action film 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. Guests can view the exterior of the Nautilus, Professor Aronnax's cabin, the pump room, the chart room, the diving chamber, the wheelhouse, and the famous organ of Captain Nemo. The exhibit will remain open until August 28, 1966. What will be done with Captain Nemo's organ? Uh, yeah, that's one of my favorite things to look at when I'm uh, riding on the Haunted Mansion and seeing it in the mm-hmm. ballroom scene. That is absolutely correct. It was moved to Disneyland's Haunted Mansion ballroom. So that's sort of cool. So I always look at it when I watch 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. That's a film I watch pretty regularly. And I always think that's cool that that ended up in the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, with, with a few and, little alterations. And I also, I, I hate it when I'm riding the one in Walt Disney World because I'm like, every time we get to the Oregon, I'm like, it's just not as cool. It's not as good as Disneyland. <laughs> yeah. I don't know anything about the history of that Oregon. If they built that one from scratch or if they got that from somewhere else. Probably built from scratch. If I had to guess, <laughs> I don't know. I'll have to look into that when we when we talk about the haunted mansion again. Yeah. 
So, okay, August 6th. Although it has been running since July, Disneyland hosts an invitation-only showing of a new park attraction on August 6th, 1965. The evening program includes a retreat ceremony and dinner at the Plaza Inn. What is the name of this attraction? 65, so I think it's I think it's going to be one of the World's Fair attractions. Just which would it be? Um, I'm gonna say, I'm gonna say maybe the additions of uh, Primeval World, Grand Canyon. Mm, okay. That's a very good guess. I th- I thought the hint that it's a retreat ceremony might 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 help a little, but no, it's great moments with Mr. Lincoln. So, okay, yeah, that went yeah. right over my head. I'll be yeah. honest. <laughs> well, it was a it was a very subtle um, <laughs> subtle one. Although originally showcased as the prime feature of the State of Illinois Pavilion at the 1964-65 New York World's Fair, so you were on the right track. This is not the original Lincoln figure, but an improved duplicate. Because remember, it actually opened, uh, you know, sort of, they designed it when the fair was still running. Mm-hmm. They designed this Lincoln. So, Okay, great. All right, August 7th. The Astro Jets at Disneyland open under a new name on August 7th, 1964. What is their new name? Ooh. Um... This attraction has gone to a lot of name changes. Unfortunately, I don't know where it would be with that. I mean, it's it, 64 seems way too early to be anything in uh anything in like Astro Orbiter yet, but um mm-hmm. maybe I know it went under like rocket jets at one point in time. Could it be that? Yeah, it's Tomorrowland Jets. They went with simplicity. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. it is what it yeah. is. <laughs> so, yeah. so open since 1956, the Astrojets was the first rocket spinner attraction at the park. Now, allegedly, the attraction's name was changed to appease United Airlines, who's just taken over sponsorship of Walt Disney's The Enchanted Tiki Room. And it's alleged the United Airlines stated the Astrojet's name was free advertising for American Airlines coast-to-coast Astrojet service. So that's interesting. And it wouldn't surprise me if that's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, Okay, and finally, August 8th. Walt Disney's fifth animated feature had its world's premiere in London, England on August 8th, 1942, despite the ongoing World War. What is the title of this film? Which number did you say, sorry? Fifth. Fifth? Mm-hmm. Um, Bambi? That's correct. <laughs> yeah, and directed by David Hand. It's released by RKO Pictures. It's based on the 1923 book Bambi, A Life in the Woods by Austrian author Felix Salton. Um, Bambi features a 40-voice choir singing songs such as Little April Shower, composed by Frank Churchill and Larry Morey. There are just two 18-second silences in Bambi. Do you know? Can you guess what they are? Complete silence? Yeah. Is one after Mother's Fate? Yes, that's one. And then maybe after the forest burns down? No, it's when man is in the forest. Okay. When, yeah, when yeah. Their there's... first sensed. That's yeah. right. Isn't that interesting? 
Yeah. So, um, I don't think I ever yeah, really I, put that together, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The the film will open in the United States five days later. And so how interesting that it's in London, England, because usually, you know, expect films like Peter Pan or Alice in Wonderland to open there first for, you know, obvious reasons. They're yeah. stories that originated in England. I, I can only think that maybe they did it because they didn't just know how long, you know, England would be open to them. Yeah. As a market. And they were just trying to get as much revenue as they could. I'm sure England also needed it at the time, too. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So um, anyway, so he did very well this week, as usual. Thank you. Okay. Well, in next week's episode, we're going to conclude our conversation with Todd Todd James Pierce about the life and legacy of Ward Kimball. Once again, I'd like to recommend Todd's book, The Life and Times of Ward Kimball, Maverick of Disney Animation. It's a fascinating read. I learned something new about Ward Kimball on pretty much every page. And if you enjoyed listening to Todd, you'll enjoy his podcast, Disney History Institute. And Craig will once again have links in our show notes to uh, all of Todd's uh, social media sites and where you can pick up his books. Mm-hmm. So, Craig, how can our listeners um, connect with you until next time? Of course, you can always find me on the random shows that I'm on, on the Does Unplugged podcast network, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Connect with me on Twitter at mbowling121, Facebook at Michael Bowling, Instagram at Michael Bowling the Diz, and you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at Connecting Walt. If you'd like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives, my Disney history episodes, on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at DisneyUnplugged.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. Thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing, that it was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. 